This podcast is sponsored by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. For more than 45 years, the writers, editors, and growing experts at Acres USA have cultivated information about modern farming practices that do not rely on toxic pesticides and toxic herbicides. We share that information through our monthly magazine, our online bookstore, events around the country, and through online articles and podcasts like this. If you're a new farmer or have been farming for a lifetime, you know there's always more to learn. New research into soil life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Good day, and welcome to Tractor Time Podcast, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I am Ryan Slaybaugh, and I will again be your host for this episode, and I am very happy to be here. Uh, We are also very happy to be bringing you another episode, our 11th this year and 23rd overall, so I think we're going to get in at least one more before the end of the year, too, so stay tuned. Um... This episode, okay now, it's about that time. In a couple of days, Acres USA is hitting the road, or getting on a plane actually, and heading to Louisville, Kentucky for our 43rd annual Eco-Ag Conference and Trade Show. Uh, In the office, we're at that hybrid state of nervousness, confidence, anxiety, and adrenaline, and our days are filled with all the odd little jobs like cutting badges, ordering bags, shipping off our bookstore, Whatever. We're not bored. I'll put it that way. And we know a lot of our listeners who will be attending are doing the same thing. They're getting their businesses and their personal lives ready to be away for the week. We know the sacrifice it takes to get everybody there. Just want to thank everybody in advance for making the effort. We're excited uh, for our lineup this year. And we're excited for... uh, to meet everybody, the newcomers, and see our old friends there as well. So uh, anyway, we thought it'd be appropriate for this episode to preview a few of the upcoming speakers that are going to be on the show uh, next week that uh, we can preview today. Uh, we wanted to include some of our sponsors. Uh, we don't do a lot of advertising or sponsored stuff uh, in the podcast, so forgive us on this one if uh, you don't want that stuff. But uh, we think you're going to like it, actually. We, these are not your normal sponsorship messages where they're pitching you stuff. These are folks just like uh, you and me, passionate about eco-agriculture, making a difference. And that's why they started a business here. And that's what we're talking about, uh, things that we can actually learn from the research that they did to build these businesses in support of eco-agriculture. Um, and not just businesses, organizations, nonprofits as well. Uh, to start, here's a quick thank you list. Uh, I wanted to get through that to the companies and organizations that make our conference and Acres USA possible. Uh, we don't thank them enough for our support. So uh, thank you to our premium sponsors. Um, they include the Savory Institute and their co-founder and CEO, Daniela Abara-Howell. Uh, you can hear an entire interview with Daniela on episode 21. So we're not going to preview you here, but I encourage you when you're done listening to this one, 
Go listen to episode 21 with Daniela. She's fascinating, and her story is inspiring of how we can all see uh, a problem in the world. Uh, she saw overgrazing and unsustainable agriculture and developed a solution that can be belied uh, anywhere in the world, honestly. Uh, their pod system's amazing. Um, Midwest Biosystems and Edwin Blosser and Company. Edwin is a master at explaining how to use compost on large-scale farms, and we'll hear from him on that uh, later on in this episode. Uh, he'll be speaking next week as well. You probably might have heard him last year if you attended. He is an, effic- uh, excuse me, an efficient uh, patient teacher, and uh, I love to be around him. Um, Eden Blue Gold, uh, you're going to hear from them. Uh, they are passionate about what they do and the time and effort they've put into researching their products. Uh, you'll hear about their process for creating organic inputs for large-scale production and what they've learned. Uh, it's possible, folks, uh, and they are doing it. Also, we want to uh, thank the following folks. Uh, Brandt, they have a whole line of sturdy, well-built farm equipment. We are kind of in love with their slogan, powerful value delivered. Uh, that about says it all. They stand by the work. Uh, search for Brandt Agriculture Tools, and you'll see what we're talking about. Uh, Birdie Agritech, Birdie's products are derived from ancient rock named, I'm not even going to call it named, look them up. You can find all these links uh, to the companies on our website, ecofarmingdaily.com and acresusa.com. The production process that Verde Agritech uh, does is 100% natural, uh, so look them up. Uh, TerraPlenish is another great supporter of Acres USA. If you're farming corn or anything that you need help in retaining your nitrogen in your fields, uh, look up TerraPlenish. This is what they do. They have a number of biological, sustainable solutions that can help you. Uh, We really like working with them as well and appreciate their support. Uh, But we're going to start our show off with a bit from Will Spencer at Environautics, who will talk about a subject we don't discuss often on the show, biodynamics. Uh, We talk uh, in late October on the phone about uh, what he says and what he's learned about biodynamics through the years, how he applies it to his business. Uh, he is a licensed holistic naturopath, uh, so everything for him connects back to human health. Uh, we're going to hear from Will Spencer uh, coming up in just a couple seconds. Thanks for listening this week. Stay tuned. Let's go to the question of the segment. Uh, we got a good one today. Uh, when we uh, were preparing, you and I talked about how the science of microbes and microbiology in the soil is really starting to connect the dots between human health and gut health. Uh, but we know even among microbes, there's diversity. Uh, so could you help us understand the difference in the diversity among microbes, especially the difference between colonizing microbes and transient microbes? Yeah, that's a big mystery out in the marketplace because there's not a whole lot of availability for the transient type. And transient is what we specialize in. Uh, so the difference colonizing, of course, you can uh, imagine by the word colonized, they actually form colonies either inside of us or uh, inside our animals or soil Um, and they're also used for fermentation they have colonies you make beer or wine or vinegar or fermentation of cabbage and so forth Uh, those are the common ones and actually we're seeing people because they're doing so much fermenting and eating of fermented foods these colonizers are actually becoming uh, into infectious states or pathogenic states because people are doing so much. And the other, uh, the other group, the transient, they don't reproduce outside of the soil. These are soil-borne organisms or soil organisms, and they don't reproduce outside of their environment uh, in the soil. And so years and years ago, I'm talking you know, 80 plus years ago, they used to be in our food all the time they used to be in our environment everywhere, and they began to die off with the usage of 
chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides. Uh, and actually around World War II, uh, a whole family of bacillus began to disappear out of the environment when they started doing open atmospheric nuclear testing. And that group of bacillus is responsible for keeping E. coli, Salmonella, Staph, Strep, Listeria, Clostridia, all in check. And so now we have this whole family of bacillus that's gone, not in our environment anymore. It, and um, we're seeing all these foodborne illnesses, like from E. coli and Salmonella and Staph and the Strep and these other microbes. And so by missing some of these soil organisms out of our environment is actually causing or allowing these big microbial imbalances all around us and we virtually don't even really realize it because we can't see it. These microbes are, you know, so small, micro means small, you need a microscope to see them. And some of these microbes you even need smaller than a micro a microscope. They're very, very small and they're very necessary, but they're not readily available to us in our environment or the food chain anymore just because of industrialization. How have we discovered uh, those individual microbes, and what's been the process to really uh, isolate the, the good ones from the ones that, uh, I shouldn't say good ones, or the ones that are really useful for the ones that are not, or are we still learning that? Well, we're still identifying. They say we've, we as a, you know, science says that they've only discovered 10 to 20 percent of what's out there in the microbial life. So there's this whole discovery process taking place. Um, for us, for us as in Environautics Unlimited, we have laboratory equipment where we, we can identify them, the species strains individually with, with our scanning technology based on frequency. So we, we've, uh, we can identify them from, for what we need here in, in, with our technology. Out in science, they don't use our technology in most laboratories and they're, I say light years behind us because uh, of academia still hasn't grasped the identification process of these microbes like we have right now in our laboratory, which our technology has come out of Europe um, uh, for identification. Makes sense. I sense, you know, I seem to get a press release once a week now from an academic institution that's giving a grant or a grant organization that's providing money for this specific type of research into soil microbiology and, and connecting it to gut health. Uh, are you sensing that, uh, you know, is that, and because I'm kind of fascinated with this now and perhaps haven't always been, uh, I, I'm wondering if I'm just more sensitive to it or are you seeing actually more money and more science and more research going into this at this point? Well, they're putting more money into it because it's becoming uh, demanded by the consumer. Uh, there's a big problem uh, out there because of the genetically modified organisms that are developing from the use of the uh, genetically modified plants and so forth. These bacteria, mostly, and some fungus, we're seeing now uh, across the landscape, we're seeing genetically modified organisms living freely in organic land, organic, uh, you know, certified land. And we're also seeing it in animals and we're seeing it in people. And so right now there's a, there's a public outcry that's happening because there's this problem. And it's, it's really an, uh, almost an unseen problem for the academic because they're not 
able to identify it as readily. Right. Yes, we're talking about very, uh, 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 and I guess this is kind of a simplest question, but what does a micro, you know, what is a microbe look like under a microscope? Is it, uh, is it a complicated organism or is it a fairly simple organism? No, it's actually quite simple. You can Google the pictures, uh, you know, of E. coli or whatever. They're very, very simple organisms. Um, they don't have a lot of components to them. Uh, and uh, the thing that I find very fascinating is they don't digest their food on the inside like we do. They digest on the outside. Oh, that's interesting. Continue. Well, I, I say that to bring it back to the uh, one of our points uh, uh, about the uh, the need for these transient organisms because their their digestion process, also known as chelation, if you're looking at it from the uh, the interior of the body or out of the environment, and uh, as in uh, remediation, because uh, those are a couple of our specialties, is we're using these microorganisms to basically digest material out of the environment so we have groups of microbes that we've identified and have in in working combinations that their food source is actually for instance petrochemicals like pesticide residue mm. so we're used microbe to digest or break down and clean up our environment at the same time feeding the environment because these microbes because of their digestive process use the petrochemicals as their food source and then give into the environment back essential fatty acids. So we're actually taking toxins and through their natural digestion process, they're feeding the environment for, with a toxin, basically. That's fascinating. Um, that's a, a great lead into the, to the other big question we want to cover today, which is how does this knowledge of uh, you know, the microbial life um, and the connections between our own health uh, translate into our day-to-day -day lives and, and into our day-to-day -day health and, and, uh, and you know what we eat and, and how we behave? Oh boy. Big question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a whole lecture on itself. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the importance, well, we're aware that the microbial imbalance is huge. We're missing a massive amount of microbial life out of our environment. There was a study done in Ames, Iowa um, that was, uh, they, they took in 1964, they took an acre of ground and they measured the amount of bacteria by weight that was in that ground and it was over 2,200 pounds. Wow. They did the same piece of ground in 2000 and something uh, and the bacterial life was weighed again and it was around 60 pounds. That, that's a huge red flag for me. Where did the other bit of, uh, you know, where did the 1,800 pounds of uh, plus bacteria go? That, that's huge. And so in what we do helping people, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing such a microbial imbalance that it's, it's staggering. And especially these species that we need, like there's a huge amount of bacteria that we are missing now they're not in our food chain anymore, but they're responsible for B vitamin production. Um, they're, they're responsible for keeping our environment clean if you're talking soil. Uh, they, they actually feed the plants, they keep the root hairs clean. All this synergy that's all around us, that used to be all around us prior to industrialization, we're seeing is all in a, it's, it's, it's imbalance all around us. 
right that that lack of homeostasis in our own bodies that you you've written about and I've, I've read uh, uh, related to this that yeah when we're off balance we don't feel good and we get sick at that point so really the the what I'm hearing is really this end-all be-all to find that balance again and to make sure that our foods are actually providing us the nutrition we need which is what we have interrupted with all our technology and all our advancements in the past 50 years did I do I have that about right yeah, that's exactly right. And the uh, science of epigenetics now is saying that our genetic integrity, the strength for our genetic integrity, is the existence in us or in our soil is determined by the broad diversity of strain, not the individual strain count, if you will. Like you go to the store and you can buy products for the soil or products for your gut for uh, 52 billion colony form unit. That's not what I'm talking about. It's one strain with 52 uh, you know, billion cells, if you will. Uh, I'm talking about the diversity of strains. That's why we have over 500 strains that we've collected and are able to use. And now coming this next year, we're able to custom make microbial formulations for the application now so we're, we're, we can actually fine-tune the microbial combination for the, say, your crop or for the, uh, for the soil cleanup or in, in, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yep, that makes sense. Uh, related, maybe sidebar to that, that point, I was wondering, um, for some folks out there, and I know there, there might be some questions about how you actually measure uh, that microbial life in the soil. How do you come up with those numbers of weight per acre? Uh, it seems like it might be a little more difficult to measure that than say uh, calcium percentage or magnesium percentage on the chemistry side, but but maybe I'm wrong on that. So how, how do you go about measuring that life in the soil? Well, that study I referred to, that was done in Iowa uh, at Ames Research Center there in Iowa, and I don't know what what they used to measure, but they were using it, measuring it in pounds, so they, they had to have isolated the bacteria from the rest of the soil. Uh, we have uh, we have our own electronic devices here that we can measure with, and we're measuring, actually we can measure uh, the, the uh, general vitality or the electrolysis of them, how active the microbes are, um, and we really don't do a whole lot of, uh, uh, the colony form unit, uh, the, uh, oh man, I'm forgetting the name now, but uh, we're not actually counting cells uh, of the uh, uh, of the microbe, sure. uh, we're, Using frequencies, it's a little bit different. We can we can tell the vitality of it by the measuring the electrolysis or the ele electrical signals, the strength of the electrical signals with our machine. That makes that makes sense, and uh, I appreciate you explaining that. The last question I had related to this was really about um, that idea. Going back to that idea of homeostasis, that you you mentioned in your writings a lot of uh, that you know the human body when it is at homeostasis will do a lot of the detoxing itself. It will clean itself. Uh, when we have the right um, balance of nutrients and, and minerals in our own body. Does soil work the same way? Will it clean itself uh, and be a more active cleanser um, on its own when we have that microbial life balanced? Yeah, in the soil, the secret is the microbe because it's the microbe that is doing the digestion or the, uh, the cleaning and the, uh, of the soil, the environment. So without the microbes, the natural microbes, that are doing their job, we don't have that ability. And this is a lot of times why we have a lot of blights 
really blight is really a, a over out over uh, excuse me a uh, out of balance fungus like a fusarium or a trichophyton or some of these others they're out of balance because they don't have enough diversity there to hold each other in check the other the other point is we have such toxicity in our air mm. and in the rain that's that's everywhere it's raining down on everything organic or not it, it, we're having air pollution through the through the water column coming down all over and it's actually there's certain soils that are so deficient of microbes it just keeps building up the toxicity and even the microbes can't mutate fast enough to even live in that environment it makes a lot of sense. I think that, uh, you know, we, we talk about regenerative ag and, and rest, restoration ag, uh, you know, getting that organic matter into the soil, building that life back is just a great, uh, great first step and uh, consistent step to take throughout the way. Um, Will, would you uh, remind us too about, and explain a little bit about environmental, environonautics, excuse me, Unlimited for us and where they can find more information about you and the company? Yeah, Environonics Unlimited, we specialize in uh, environmental health, and that's inside the body environment as well as the soil environment or, you know, outside environment. And uh, our website is environonics.com. Uh, it is, it is uh, down right now because we're rebranding and re redoing uh, our website, uh, but there's a little bit there. Um, I, I did give a talk last year uh, at the Acres Conference that was pretty good, but you can get information there. Um, but if you you can if you want any more information, you can always send an email just to me directly. If I can give that, is that okay? That's fine. Go for it. Okay, it's will w i l at environautics.com. Fantastic, and we'll have all those links and email addresses and contact information on the blog piece that corresponds with the audio and the, and the podcast. So if you didn't get that written down fast enough, find our uh, blog and you can click through and email uh, Will directly. Uh, Will, appreciate the time in the classroom today. We hope we answered those questions for our listeners today. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, best of luck with uh, through the rest of the year. All right, you're welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you to Will Spencer at Environautics again. Uh, next up, around the same time in late October, we interviewed James Arden. Uh, he's with Eden Blue Gold. Uh, the interview was interesting. James wanted to teach us about what he sees as the true differences between plants, animals, and humans, and what our similarities and differences can teach us about how to interact and how we can heal each other. Uh, so here's a bit of that interview. Uh, here's James Arden with Eden Blue Gold. Well, Ryan, the best place that I know to start is everything was created very simple. We make it complex when we look at it. So it's really some basic simple animals, I mean some, some simple answers and some deductions once you start putting building the piece of the puzzle by the border. So when you fill all this in, um, the basic principles of all things that we see it, you're going to hear some things today that some people say, oh, they don't understand it which we like to explain it to them. Some people say, well, that's against what the uh, modern agriculture is teaching. Well, that's okay. Um, there's a lot of problems in matter of modern agriculture today, which is um, what we try to do is to alleviate these things for the farmers and through our plant and animal sciences. But basically, the simplicity of the whole thing is, is basically three things. It's light, water, and magnetism. And this is where it all derives from. So... 
we can expound on this and how this all comes about. So we say, how close is the plant and the animal, and you know, how close are we all together? Well, a lot of people don't understand what we refer to as plant sap or phyto uh, phytoplast, which is the plant sap. And humans and animals have hemoglobin. So, but the only difference between the plants and the and the the phytoplast in the plants and the hemoglobin in us or the animals is one molecule. So hemoglobin has a an iron molecule basically at the center of its magnet, magnetic core, and then the phytoplast has um, magnesium. You know, so this is that's pretty close. You know, when you think about that, it, and it's and a lot of times it's very humbling when you think about that. So when we do this, you know, we look at the plant and we look at the earth and we look at creation. And the Earth is basically negative charged. Um, it exerts ions, which we like to refer to them as, as magnetic bands. And these, these ions, the Earth is, just has an infinity, uh, an infinite source of these. And this is like where you walk barefoot on the ground. If you walk through the fields, those ions are going to exchange and balance the body. It does it in the animals. This is why animals don't like to be on concrete. Or they don't like to be on metal, especially when the metal is and the concrete is not grounded. Concrete will ground, but it depends what structure it's made out of. So when the earth is negative charge, and anything that grows on the earth is basically takes on the same charge from it. So the plants and the trees, they're exuding egg, um, negative uh, ions or magnetic bands. And what's happening is the atmosphere is positive charge. This, you all, some people have probably heard this where Carrie Reen says the plant gets most of its it's a nutrient from the air. Well, this is this is how this basically happens. Uh, let's say it's the basis for it. So whatever grounds the plant, you know, is grounds to the earth, these where these magnetic bands are transformed. So again, the atmosphere being positively charged and the earth being negatively charged, and all nutrients are what? They're excited by light. Right. And light is what? It's the sun. And this is how the sun moves. The sun moves um, by magnetic charges also, the same with the moon. So when the sun is coming early in the morning, this light, it, this is why the morning is so important to a farmer. It's, it's the absolute best time to foliar feed your plant. And it's, it's because the charge difference between what's happening on the light molecules. See, light is an electromagnetic wave. And what is an electromagnetic wave? We've heard a lot of things called EMF. Mm -hmm. And what the Earth does is the Earth cycles, that some say 7.68 hertz, we, we like to believe it's 9. So the Earth is running off a frequency of like boom, boom, boom. And that's how that works. Your cell phone is working off a frequency that's going <laughs> It's cycling at thousands and thousands of times, which means it's like opening and closing. So this, this reminds me of like in the, uh, the dairy industry. A lot of these farmers are making, they don't understand what's happening to the cattle and things like this, but we find a huge problem in, in fluorescent lights. Fluorescent lights put out a frequency the cows can't stand. You go in a lot of chicken houses right. and they got these big fluorescent lights or halogens up there. And they're putting out this frequency that the animals can't stand and it stresses them. Uh, milk and parlors don't have grounds. They don't have grounds hooked to the 
the equipment properly or their equipment's not grounded to the earth and the animals can't stand it. It stresses the animals. So how does the plant create energy, you know, on the earth? So it all starts with light water magnetism and it works through light as an electromagnetic wave. So light changes the density of water through hydrogen bonding. So what happens is in the morning when the first light comes, it'll change the density of the hydrogen, which hydrogen OH negative or H negative, you know, HO, it's, it's that carbon and carbon dioxide are some of the most important elements in the plant that move and discern elements. And they all do it through light and do it through frequencies. So what enables all this to happen? Well, the key is sunlight. And we go back to light, water, and magnetism. So sunlight enables these programs. And what they are is what excites this in the plant is the mitochondria. Mitochondria is let's, there's a technical, whole technical definition, but let's just call mitochondria the cell within the cell. And the mitochondria, they activate and they work through magnetic light bands. The mitochondria make a water. And this is not, we're not saying it's hydration in the plant, but they make like a super water. That super water is where these hydrogen ions are charged. So, and how does the mitochondria work? They work by capturing sunlight. It's no different than go, your kids, go take a pinwheel, put it in the shade, it won't turn. But if you take that pinwheel and you put it in the sun, it'll start to turn. And it'll do, it'll do it basically with, with no wind. So, so we, I, go I, ahead. I'm sorry, Ryan. No, I just wanted to stop you there because it's a fascinating point. I just had a question, and this is really the layman's question behind everything that you just outlined. But when we wake up in the morning and we go outside and it's dark out versus you wake up in the morning and you go outside and it's light out, and all of a sudden you just feel differently, that's not just a psychological thing is what you're saying. That's actually that sunlight firing up our energy systems at that point. Is that Absol- right? Yeah, absolutely not. So this, this you're correct, 100%. Most people don't understand this. Go to Africa, and we were sitting on, if we were sitting on the Serengeti Plain, and there's just every animal out there that you could see, okay? When does time out happen when no animal chases another animal looking for a food source? It happens first thing in the morning. All those animals will be staring into the sunlight. And they'll do that for, you know, anywhere from 5 to 20 to 30 minutes. And when I caught on to our animals at the office, you know, the dogs, we used to notice that the dogs with first light would go up on the hill and they'd sit and they'd face right at the sun looking into the sunlight. Well, there's, there's a whole, I mean, we could talk for hours on what that does to the body, but this is light. We are, we are, light, we are electrical beings, just like the animals and just like the plants. We run off electrical frequencies. This is why when they operate on somebody in the operating room, they couldn't figure out why all open-heart people were dying on the table. It's because they weren't grounded. Interesting. And what happened is it put too much stress on the plant, I mean, on the bodies. Right. So, again, uh, th- th- you're exactly right. So, in the AM, the sunlight changes the density of water in the plant. And this is the first time it moves. Well, what's one of the first things, what's one of the first things that moves in the plant that early at first light? It's calcium. Calcium is basically the activator. This is what we like to say here. Phosphate is king and calcium is queen. Some people will say it backwards. We're not going to argue that. But what we are going to tell you, if those two elements are not balanced in the plant, the animals, or the body, nothing else is really going to happen. Uh, You said you'll be at our show in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, December 
4th through 7th this year. Uh, looking forward to uh, uh, talking to you then as well, and hopefully uh, the audience listening that will show up will find you at your booth and uh, talk your ear off uh, while we're there that day. So, uh, James, <laughs> again, uh, really appreciate the time. We will have those links on our uh, blog post as well and, uh, and on the site with the podcast. You can find this podcast at acresusa.com and at ecofarmingdaily.com and across the iTunes store. Uh, James Arpin, again, uh, thank you for joining us today, and have a great rest of your day. Well, Ryan, we thank you so much. We thank you, Acres USA, and we thank everybody for taking the time to listen out there. And if you all want to hear something else, just yell contact Acres. We're, we're here to help. We'll do as, we'll talk as much as they'll allow us. Thank you so much. Our third guest today, thanks to James Arpin, by the way, with Eden Blue Gold, uh, but our third guest today is Edwin Blosser. His company, Midwest Biosystems, lives the word. When we talked about a year ago, he was looking out his office window at harvesters picking black beans that were going off to Chipotle. Uh, we talked about large-scale biological inputs and what he's learned from a lifetime of farming. Uh, if you're attending our show, Edwin really is a must-see. And uh, please find him at his booth, too. Uh, Midwest Biosystems does so many good things for farmers and has so many proven tactics uh, for organic farming and for all farmers. I started the conversation with him by asking him to tell us how he got into farming. Certainly, uh, Ryan, that's an excellent question. I, I would just say, uh, as I start in, first of all, I have a whole series of teleclasses about uh, one of them called Edwin's Story, and you reminded me of that. <clears throat> and so for those that want to can get on our website. But uh, I got into this um, basically because of my parents not being able to farm when I was a young, young lad and then finally got that opportunity i kind of caught the enthusiasm and the gratitude my parents had hey finally we can get to farm you know they've really wanted a farm to raise their children on and so forth and i really caught that then along comes the late 70s early 80s and we got caught with a little too much debt and about 21 percent interest and we didn't lose the farm but we got precious close and with that experience, I came kind of out of that saying, you know, if there's any vow I would make, it would be how can I dedicate the rest of my life in helping the family farm really thrive. And uh, so it's been a passion of mine to, to do that. I, I uh, could go into a lot more detail, and I'll probably just summarize it to say it this way, that uh, the Lord had it kind of intended and seemed like he was just... Uh, putting me in the right spot at the right time. I studied under four trainers in seven and a half years with the experiential training where I started to become a soils consultant for the renewable farming system, meaning that the land gets better as you farm it and also be more economical. And, and this started in 1984 and ended, as you know the math, uh, up into 1991. And with that training was unique in the sense I didn't just sit down and have it academic. I could go to a month to month and a half of academic uh, work, and then I had to go out in the field and prove it out in the field. And, and uh, while it was a slow way to go, that slow boat really made it solid because it really put me into the practitioner's seat. So we, we would call ourselves application experts because that's really how I was trained. Does that make sense, Ryan? No, that does. I appreciate you. It's a, it's a, I love hearing people's stories about how they got to where uh, they are today. As they said, uh, 
you know, and, and, and I, I heard somebody say the other day, and, I, and this is a little unrelated, but I love it. It was something along the lines of, if you look too far long term, you're going to miss the, the, the shiny new opportunity in the corner of your eye. And so uh, it's always a balance of, of being uh, of trying to guess where you're going to end up in life and where you actually end up in life. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I smile by that because I really felt God's call. I felt like this is the right thing, and I entered it with all the enthusiasm. But if I have to admit something very freely, I would say I'd have never encountered and I'd have never embarked on that seven-and-a-half-year journey had I known what I was going to go through. <laughs> but by the time I learned what I was going to learn and learned where I was going, I was already far enough in it that I didn't want to stop, so I kept going. And am I ever glad that I did because it really helps me from an experiential point of view to learn these concepts, not just... Uh, in my mind, but just true, valid experience. And so today we are in 26 different countries, and the only reason we are, in my opinion, is, is that we are able to apply some of these things, just hardcore application issues. Well, we, we're, we're glad you powered through as well. Um, I should have mentioned early in this podcast that uh, uh, Edwin will be speaking at our conference December 6th through 9th in Columbus, Ohio this year, and uh, teaching others about what he's learned in his career, and we're really thankful that he's been a part of our our family and our uh, uh, family of writers and experts and authors through the years uh, to speak at our conference. So, um, again, we're really we're really glad you plowed through as well. Um, we're yeah. Well, thank thank you, Ryan. We're uh, let's let's talk about compost for a little bit. Uh, sure. We're, we're just going to sure. start right there. Um, you had in our conversations before this uh, recording, we talked a little bit about. Sometimes that when we bring up the word compost, we think gardening, small scale, uh, 30-gallon bins and wheelbarrows, but um, you have a little different approach to compost. Could you kind of talk about how you use compost on your large-scale farms and the farmers you work with? Yeah, most certainly. Uh, <clears throat> as I have looked at it, uh, Ryan, uh, as I entered through the uh, entrance of graduating, from my experiential training, my seven and a half years of training, I encountered uh, some technology from Europe that was how to control the enzymatic activity in the root zone. And since I was really focused on soil fertility and, and getting the absolute best results and the most highest uh, return financially and soil-wise, I wanted to go after this. And so I started getting into this, and I learned that uh, these people were doing it through a special type of compost called humus compost over in Europe, and man, I wasn't interested in compost. That, that's not me, you know. I'm in the soils mm -hmm. consulting business, and, and this is something I want to do. But listen, I found out that they've got 4,000 different enzymes that they have categorized and what they function at in the root zone. And, I needed to get a hold of that information, and so I decided, uh, long story made short, to go over to Europe, had several people going with me, and they all backed out except for myself. So in 1992, I took a trip over to Europe, went to 11 different country, countries over in Europe, and studied under the farms that were implementing what these people were advocating, which was an unfamiliar term to me at that time called humus compost. And again, my attitude was, well, I can't do compost. I'm in large-scale farming. I can't get there from here. 
that's for the garden folks, the truck farmers and stuff like that. We can't do that large scale. And so I go over there and I study underneath and I see some things that I was absolutely amazed at. For example, how could one get from 2.6% organic matter and in the first 10 years using cover crops and regular compost only gain two-tenths of 1%. Mm -hmm. So from 1972 to 1982, they had went from 2.8, sorry, 2.6% organic matter to 2.8% organic matter. Well, in 1982, this gentleman in Europe came over to America and met up with a doctor here who spent 35 to 38 years learning how to make a special type of humus called humus protein. And that humus protein could be built while making compost, which made the compost totally different. And that's really what's amazing is, is the next 10 years, it went from 2.8% organic matter to 16.5%. So the first set of 10 years, it grew two-tenths of a percent. The second set of 10 years, using humus technology, it grew to 16.5% from 2.8. Now, am I saying that the organic matter does go up that much if you use humus compost anywhere in the world? I am not saying mm -hmm. that. But it caught my attention, and I decided I'm going to look at this biologically. So I studied under his... Uh, microscope is the electron microscope uh, under and and went through some of his research and quizzed him for three and a half days straight wow. just solid uh, it was a very very intense situation but then for the next several years uh, I would say that we spent an awful lot of time uh, either coming to to they coming to America or getting on the phone with each other and trying to get the gist of what this is really about. And so at the end of the day, that moved me into getting into compost. And so my first uh, attempt at it was kind of interesting and laughable. But um, I was pretty eager to learn and brought those folks from Europe over here five times in the essence of 20, the next 24 months to really be sure I learned it. And in that process, started making an extract, a liquid extract out of it, and getting it into the large-scale farming and through their planters and so forth, and, and uh, bingo, we had a winner. And so that started our career down this humus compost process. And then we continued to do some more studies, and we all of a sudden discovered using humus compost, we can mix them, pre-mix them with minerals, and balance the base saturations as I was taught to do. Mm -hmm. And instead of having a 40 to 60% success rate in getting the stuff moved the way it's supposed to be moved, we could use 10% amount of minerals and have close to an 80% success rate. And so I was sold on this humus compost. I, I was saying, no, wait a minute, this is large scale stuff. This is stuff that's very economical. This is stuff where I can take magnesium levels in the 30% range and lower them to a much better nitrogen cycle process so I don't have to use near as much nitrogen to grow the same yields. Those are just examples, of course. But I learned that humus compost is a tool. I learned that using that tool correctly 
made for phenomenal things happen, such as forcing soil particles to come apart and so forth. So there is a difference between compost and humus compost. Now, I, I would like to just make this comment mm -hmm. that you started this question out. We are certainly out there for the small guy. Mm -hmm. And I would like to make it this comment that it seemed to me, and I've kind of, uh, and I may even comment more about it later, but it seemed to me like we had to figure it out on a large scale, make sure that's economical, and then it has allowed us to help the smaller farmer as well. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, no, that does make sense. I think the one point I'd love you to, to just make sure uh, uh, folks are clear on is really, um, you know, if you could give that maybe one or two sentence description of what is the fundamental difference between humus compost and compost that most people are familiar with. Yes. I would like to answer that in two fundamental brief stretches. Great. The first one is not directly answering it, but it builds up to the second one. First and foremost... <clears throat> All things grow fundamentally, mostly from the environment and sun. Mm -hmm. And I want to describe what, what, what I mean by that mm -hmm. by giving you a story. Great. Then I'll go to the actual answer. So a Flemish physician in the 1800s put together a study, a five-year study, where he put exactly 200 pounds of soil in a pot, carefully had a lid over it and put a five-pound willow tree in this pot, did nothing but water it, and in five years that tree was 164 pounds instead of five pounds. Or, a different way to say it, it grew 159 pounds in five years putting only water out there. Wow. So his logic was, and he even went to test some of the water, mm -hmm. and sure, there was some calcium in the water, and there was some logical stuff, and so he said, maybe a little bit comes from that, but ultimately very, very little. So I got to figure this out. So he takes the tree out of the soil, carefully strips the soil off of the roots, carefully weighs the soil, starting out with 200 pounds five years earlier, that 159-pound tree gain, it weighed 164 by then, minus 5. Mm -hmm. It now, that soil weighed 199 pounds and 14 ounces. In other words, 2 ounces of soil were gained wow. by this uh, taken out of the soil. So, where I'm going with this subject is this. When you realize that most of the growth comes from the environment and sun, if you really know the soil is truly the key to unlock that ability to harvest more sun and atmospheric energy, if you really know it as that, what most people miss is when they let it rot, most of that stuff blows back into the air. Mm -hmm. What came from the atmosphere, most people lose back into the air. What we do with humus technology, and I call it technology because we use a liquid and a solid compost, humus compost solid both as tools of the trade. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more about the management of the farm than it is just using those two tools. Please understand that correctly. But if you ask the question, what's the difference between compost and humus compost? Humus compost is made in such a way that we capture 
as much as possible of all the stuff that came from the environment. Regular compost just rotted, and most of that blew up in the air. Now, did that come through or not? No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I uh, um, I appreciate that. That's we, ca- we capture we capture what grew from the environment and sun energy and turn it into a humus protein using special microbes to eat those volatile compounds that are lighter than air that most people, when they make compost, lose up in the air. We can't. We can't afford to lose it in the air. It's kind of like this. If you really would want to use last year's fertilizer to grow this year's crop, you would have to understand 97% of the growth or better came from the environment and will go back to the environment unless you do some kind of a residue program in the fall to capture it. Hmm. It is really that simple, Ryan. That's almost our show today. Again, that was Edwin Blosser with Midwest Biosystems. Uh, I couldn't let this episode completely be finished, though, without a soundbite from one of our keynote speakers next week. Uh, real quick, it's only about 30 seconds. Uh, the other two speakers, Daniela with the Savior Institute and legendary grower and author Elliot Coleman, are two of them. Our third is Joel Salzman with Polyphase Farms down in Virginia. I asked him what he liked better, speaking or farming. Uh, and this was his answer. He'll be leading our conference with a resounding presentation on Thursday night. So this is just a taste. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, look, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, of a uh, theatrical, whatever, you know, drama. <laughs> and and, and um, you know, two, the extrovert, the introvert, um, you know, the two kinds of people. One is people drain you. The other is people uh, energize you. And uh, I'm, I'm blessed to be the, the person that people energize. So um, the idea of, you know, of performing and, and, and uh, you know, sharing our story and uh, trying to think up more clever, clever ways and more entertaining ways to, to tell the story, uh, that, that's very exciting to me. And I, I, find it, um, I find it certainly as fun, as challenging, and as enjoyable as, you know, as the actual farm work. Now, that is our show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tractor Time Podcast brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. Find us at www.acresusa.com, at ecofarmingdaily.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Better yet, actually, come find us in Louisville next week and say hello. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and have a great week ahead.